Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, the 19th chapter. And before we read, let me bring you up to date. We're giving the highlights and high points in the book of Exodus. We've already covered, and let me bring you up to date on these chapters. Chapter 1, we had Israel in bondage. And chapter 2, the birth of a deliverer, Moses. Chapter 3, the call and commission of Moses. And chapter 4, his credentials. And uh, chapters 5 and 6, we had the conflict that began between Pharaoh and Moses, or Moses and Pharaoh, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> but it was a conflict. I guess it takes two to have a conflict, doesn't it? And then in chapters 7 through 11, this is an important section that we dealt with. In chapters 7 through 11, we had the ten judgments that Pharaoh brought upon uh, I mean, that Moses brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the four compromises that Pharaoh tried to make with Moses concerning letting the children of Israel go and Moses would not accept those compromises. So we have the ten judgments that God uh, brought upon uh, uh, Pharaoh by the hand of Moses and four attempts to compromise with, with Moses by Pharaoh. And, uh, and of course, he didn't accept those compromises and Therefore, it brought the last and final judgment to where that Pharaoh would permit uh, Moses and the children of Israel to be delivered. And uh, then in chapter 12, we have the Passover, how the Passover was instituted, the Passover lamb. In the 13th chapter, we have the sanctification of the firstborn. And in the 14th chapter, we have the crossing of the Red Sea. In the 15th, we have the Song of Redemption that we've just covered in the last lesson or two. Chapter 16, the manna that God sent down to feed the children of Israel as they begin their, their wanderings there after deliverance from Egypt and there was no bread, no food. And in chapter 17, we had water from the rock and a war that began with Amalek, which is a type of the flesh. And then we had Jethro trying to instruct Moses in chapter 18 as to how to handle his uh, uh, judgment over the uh, children of Israel when they'd come to him with various judgments. Now then, let me. that's up to date then, chapter 18. Now then, chapter 19 and 20, at least we'll uh, study those two things tonight, how Israel comes to Sinai in chapter 19, and then in chapter 20, the giving of the law, or the, actually uh, the Ten Commandments. And uh, then, of course, uh, we get into chapters 21 through 23, we have... Diverse laws for God's people. This is in the future study. And chapter 24, Moses up in the mountain. And then from chapters 25 on through 40, the remainder of the book of Exodus, the materials for the tabernacle and the study about the tabernacle that we've already covered, but we will give you a brief and, and give you a review of those things, just pinpointing the most important things about the study of the tabernacle when we get that far. A couple of lessons away, I'm sure. But tonight we want to deal with Israel as they come to Sinai and then the giving of the law. And of course the law, by that we mean the Ten Commandments. Uh, actually, when you think of the law, uh, the law is given in three divisions. First of all, you have the commandments in chapters 19 and 20. When you think of the law, you don't think just primarily uh, of the Ten Commandments because there's a lot of other things involved in the law. We usually at least think of the Ten Commandments. But then we have uh, 
And we have that in chapters 19 and 20. But then we have the judgments. You know, there were various judgments or statutes and things that uh, regulated those laws as they were applied to Israel. And that's in chapters 21 through 23. You'll have all these various problems brought to, to surface and how you deal with uh, if there's an abuse of one uh, person or the other, or if there's uh, stealing or killing or, or false witnesses or various other things that happen and how to deal with those uh, from, the, from the standpoint of the law. And then in chapters 25 through 31, you have the ordinances. So let me sum it up in three words. You have the commandments, the judgments, and the ordinances that all pertain to the law. Now then, we'll get into detail. Turn to chapter 19 again of the book of Exodus. And we read on down to verse uh, 6, but we'll just review it shortly for those uh, that were not here uh, in the 19th chapter. It says, In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. Now this is where God told Moses to go up on the mountain and receive the law. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mount, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto, unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, last week we brought you down to verse 6 and showed you how that as far as Israel was concerned, that they were a nation, a holy nation, but they also were a a kingdom of priests, and how that in the New Testament Peter speaks of all believers as a priestly nation and a, and a holy nation. In fact, we gave you the reference to that. So that's really where we are tonight in our study. And that's bringing you up to date the best I can. And we'll read uh, various verses in the 19th chapter and then get into the 20th where we'll see the law and we'll deal more uh, slowly and firmly with the 20th chapter. If you'll notice verse 8, it says, I mean, verse 7 says, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, listen to this, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now you see, before this time, even from the beginning of the Bible, all the people that God dealt with, whether it's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or even Noah and uh, Enoch and others earlier, we find that he dealt with them in grace. And now, God says, I'm going to give you some words to live by, and I'm going to give you some law. They had failed under grace because they had sinned and come short of, of the glory of God, just like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But now, God's going to give them law. And notice what they say concerning the law. They say, all the words that God says we will do. I don't think they knew what they were saying, do you? Because they didn't do anything that, that 
If they couldn't do what God wanted them to do under grace, certainly they couldn't do all that God wanted them to do under the law. So they they terribly failed under law to do what God wanted them to do. But God gave them law, and it was necessary to prove them. We'll read later on where He gave them this law to prove them to see if they would obey. Now then, when we start studying the law and the law that was given to Israel, and then even the Ten Commandments that we're going to study in a moment, we're going to find that God gave them not only to prove Israel, but also when when we bring them down and apply them to ourselves, we'll see that we have failed too, and that if we, if a man has broken any point of the law, he is guilty, as James says, of breaking God's law, and therefore that shows us the necessity or the need of the Savior in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. Uh, the Bible says in the New Testament, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Right. So. These people were going to fail. And God knew they were going to fail. But He was giving them what His holy and righteous standard is all about. And then He gave them provision for them to to redeem themselves from the curse and the judgments that they would put themselves under voluntarily. Remember here, before it was ever given, uh, uh, Moses repeated the words. Moses returned. Look at verse 8 the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come to thee in a thick cloud. But verse 8 says, the people uh, said, the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. You see, they confirmed their commitment to keep everything that God would give them. I'm sure that uh, most of them had good intentions. And they thought, well, if God tells us to do something, the least we can do is do what He says. But they forgot to take into consideration their sinful nature and the fact that God's law was holy. They forgot to take into consideration that they were weak in themselves and couldn't do everything that God uh, wanted them to do because they had sinned and come short of His glory. And you read over in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, For what the law could not do, listen, it could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, doesn't mean the law was weak. It means the flesh was weak and couldn't live up to its standards. And it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, it means a sacrifice for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law, now listen carefully, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So Jesus kept the law perfectly and therefore you and I have the privilege of not using that as uh, the law as uh, strictly something that we must obey every point or we're going to be uh, killed. And, you know, many of the things of the law brought the sentence of death, didn't they? Uh, we'll read and study that in, in a little bit. So, instead of that, we are redeemed from the penalty and the curse of that law and then made free to walk and try to follow the Lord because He's fulfilled it all. Now then, no one has kept the law but Jesus. Remember, uh, Jesus said that you, they had not kept the law. He spoke to the Jews who were the ones that would claim they had kept it. And Stephen was stoned to death because he says, you received the law. He's speaking to the Jewish nation. He said, you received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And for that, they stoned him to death because he told them the truth. And you know, some people get offended today if you say, well, you haven't kept God's law. 
They said, well, yes, I know the Ten Commandments. I live by the Golden Rule. I live by the Ten Commandments. Well, you live by them, but when, when we uh, get over in the 20th chapter, we'll see how we've sinned and come short of the glory of God. But let's go ahead with this preparation. The 19th chapter is the preparation for the giving of this law. Now then, let's go on and read in verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. You see, Moses is acting as what? Mediator between the people and God. It was necessary that the people have a mediator. By the way, it's necessary today that we have a mediator. And that one is who? Jesus. There is one mediator between God and men who? The man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, when it says one, that means there's only one. It's not the preacher. It's not the deacon. It's not a priest. It's not someone, not father, mother, aunt, aunt or uncle or someone or grandma. It's Jesus. Now, these others may be influential and help us in particular needs. But there's only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. So when you, And you have the privilege of going to Christ and having Him to mediate for you between uh, you and God. And that's why the Bible says there's no other way than Jesus to the Father. You know, I preach funerals all the time, and sometimes the other day I preached a graveside funeral. And you hope it's accepted and received. But uh, I preached on John 14, a sure promise of salvation to all who believe uh, uh, in Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but, but by me. And a sure promise of, uh, of, uh, of going to be with the Lord when we die. A sure promise of the resurrection. A sure promise of the city of the redeemed uh, for God's people in Revelation uh, chapter 21. And these things, and sometimes when you make it real straight and narrow, you don't know how people receive it. But nevertheless, you know, the preacher's obligation is to be truthful to the Word. And uh, you can't uh, be uh, showing uh, favors to uh, just because certain people may not be willing to accept those truths. And uh, he, there's a great responsibility. You have a great responsibility as a Christian to stand for the Word too and stand for the truth. You can't just dilly-dally around and say, well, I believe everybody's going to heaven, they just go in a different way. You know, I'm not so sure about that. Because the Bible says there's a way which seemeth right unto man. The end thereof are the ways of death. See? And so, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One and only way. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So it narrows it down to the person of Christ, to Him being the one and only way of salvation, the only way to heaven, the only way to God. But anyway, let's go on with this. Verse 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. And for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Now look at verse 12. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up unto the mount or, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Drop down to verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mountain, that's the lower part of the mountain. 
And Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. By the way, you may notice something in this verse. It doesn't say that, that the men were blowing the trumpets. This was the trump of God that was sounding. It doesn't say Jethro came and blew the trumpet, or some of the elders of Israel blew the trumpets, or the priests. Of course, the priestly function was only beginning to be established. It doesn't say Moses or Aaron blew the trumpet. It says, And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called, unto Moses, called Moses unto the top of the mount. And Moses went up, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also which uh, come near to the, to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. The people had to stand at a distance. The priest had to stand at a distance. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount, and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priest and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. What does the law do at the very outset? It sets people at a distance from God, doesn't it? It doesn't bring them real close to God. The, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that New Testament believers, both Jews and Gentiles in the book of Ephesians, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The law didn't bring us nigh. It made us stand afar. Not only uh, you and I, but it made especially the nation of Israel stand afar off. Now then, we'll get into that. By the way, we'll have that again and stated in no uncertain terms in the 20th chapter. The 20th chapter now deals with the Ten Commandments. Let me rehearse them for you and we'll run across them as we study. He says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness is the last one on the list. Now, these Ten Commandments are still God's uh, holy rule and guidelines. And did you know that nations of this world have uh, set their guidelines? Many nations that are uh, Christian and godly nations have, have taken God's Word to set up some guidelines. Uh, even if they profess not to believe the Bible, they still <laughs> kind of order their society after the order of the Bible. Can you imagine certain uh, real... Uh, uh, what should I say? Nations that have dictators, dictator-type nations and people still having some guidelines that are based upon the Word of God even though they don't even believe in God. They want to have a, a ruler of their own and set their own standards and yet they, they come down on the things that God uh, restricts and says in His Word. And maybe not to the T, but at least some of those things bleed through into governments all over the world. Russia, Iraq, Germany, 
all of these things, they bleed through, even though you have various uh, real terrorist type of leaders from time to time. And so we do know that God says in the book of Romans that uh, the powers that be are ordained of God. And it tells us that we are to have laws and rules and regulations to go by. Okay, chapter 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord. The word Lord means Jehovah. And thy God means Elohim. Elohim. By the way, there's two different words there. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no... Here, here's the commandments. Here's number one. Now, we're going to have all ten commandments in this 20th chapter here. And some other things too. But he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, someone comes along and says, Oh, that's easy. I never worshipped anyone but God. Well, have you examined that very closely? Anything you put first or before God, you, you may, you've had another God. You say, well, I haven't made it a God. Well, by not putting God first, you've put something else in the place. And so if you put someone or something in the place of God or before God, you're really having another God, you may not want to admit it. But uh, uh, we find that over in the New Testament, you know, when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler and he gave him the commandments, he says, uh, he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, he says, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he starts with the last six that have to do with man's relationship to man instead of the first four that have, have to do with man's relationship to God. Jesus starts with the last six and he says, well, you know the commandments. You, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not uh, kill, etc. And so he goes down the line. And this man says, well, Lord, all these have I observed from my youth up. And Jesus says, yet lackest thou one thing. See, he's putting him to the test. And whether or not he had done all these things, observed them, maybe outwardly he had. He tried to live by them. But he said to, he said to this rich young ruler, he said, yet lackest thou one thing. You know, if you lack one thing of fulfilling God's law, you're guilty, right? So he says, yet lackest thou one thing. And he says, if thou wilt be perfect, you know, according to the law, what good sh thing shall I do? Not can I be saved by grace. His question was, what good thing can I do? Right? So he said, he said, if thou wilt be perfect, take all that you have, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And then he said, and here's the gods. Here's the number one rule. Then he says, take up thy cross and follow me. In other words, put me first. You treat me as God and have no other gods before me. And the man went away, what? Sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now, what was his God? His possessions. You see? he And, and I'm, I don't believe that Jesus really expected him to sell all that he had. I believe that Jesus would have let him keep enough to, for his own support and needs, but he wanted to put him to the test to see if he really claimed that he was keeping all the commandments. And wanted to be saved by what he did and by his works. And Jesus was showing him the impossibility of him being able to save by his works. And even though he might claim to have kept these last six of the Ten Commandments, Jesus put him on the spot if you kept the first one then, or the first four. But uh, 
Be that as it may, we'll see what these commandments mean. Chapter 20, Exodus, verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Here's your uh, idol worship. Any graven image, whether it's of wood, of stone, of clay, of mortar, whatever, of concrete, of carvings, whatever. He says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And yet all over the world, there are even heathen nations and people that have their images and their idols and their gods. God forbid that we should put them in, Christian, in our Christian religion. And that's exactly what happened across the world today. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Do not bow down thyself to them, it says. When people bow down to an image, they're committing idolatry. When you bow down, that's what you're serving. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. He says, I'm going to not only bring judgment, but I'm going to show mercy, visiting iniquity upon those that hate me. And he says, showing judgment, or mercy, rather, unto the thousands that love me. In verse 7, you have the third commandment. What's the first two? Thou shalt have no other gods before, more, before me, and thou shalt not make in thee any graven images. Number three is verse seven. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Look at this. For the Lord will not hold, will not hold him guiltless. That means he'll count him as guilty. He will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. His name used for vanity, just slightly. His name used for falsehood or profanity or blasphemy or perjury or just justing or speaking lightly of the name of God or foolishly or irreverently. Can you think of, you know, you hear it every day. And people, a lot of people really are unconscious of the fact they're taking the name of God in vain. They're just in such a habit of hearing it in society, they pick it up. And others deliberately so. But they take the name of God in vain. When you, when, you, when you say, Oh my God, that's in vain. I just use that to show you. And I wouldn't, I, you don't hear me saying that. But I said it tonight to show you that even that kind of a... That is in vain. Because if you were saying that and say, Oh Lord my God, be merciful to me or help me in my need... That would be different. That would be reverently, wouldn't it? Using it wholly and in reverence, it would be a different thing. But to just exclaim it for no particular reason, or slightly or lightly, it is using the name of God in vain. And you hear it every day on every hand. And beloved, a lot of times it's taking God's name in vain when people least realize that they're doing so. And, and God says, I will not hold him guiltless that taketh his, he will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now for Israel of old, that was the seventh day, and it's always been. And it was Saturday 
for Israel. And it hasn't changed. Today, we worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. And the, and the Lord's Day to the New Testament Christian is to be kept holy. Just as the Sabbath day for Israel was to kept, be kept holy. Uh, before Christ, they worshipped on the seventh day of the week. Right? But then after Christ and His resurrection, the Bible says, when the disciples were gathered together on the first day of the week, Jesus rose on the first day of the week. They were assembled together on the first day of the week to break bread. You find the, the New Testament recognizes the Lord's Day or the day of Christ's resurrection. And certainly if Israel of old was to keep the Sabbath day holy, the seventh day, then, of course, you and I are to keep the Lord's day holy. It says, Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. By the way, you know this commandment of, this, of the Sabbath day has a negative. In other words, you're to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and you're not to work on the, on the Sabbath. But then it says, Six days uh, shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Here's a positive statement too. Connected with the with reserving that one day for the Lord, you're also to apply yourself to labor the six days. Wonder how many of those uh, people would like to apply the six days as they like to claim that they keep the Sabbath day and go out and work a little bit. You see, six days a week. Put yourself to the task of work. Paul says in the New Testament, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. Right? And the Bible says the laborer is worthy of his hire. So, uh, God's people are to be working people. God's people are not to be lazy people. And so, we need to apply some of these things to our society today, don't we? You find a lot of people loafing around and say, I don't have anything. Do you have anything? Will you help me? Well, yeah, I can work for it and give it to you. But if I didn't work, I wouldn't have anything to give you. So, you know, it's kind of a vicious cycle, isn't it? But you find people that are that way, and I don't know what's going to change it. Maybe some things in our society will change. But anyway, verse 10, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is in with it, within thy gates. By the way, many people today that claim to be keeping that Old Testament Sabbath day do not keep it because you're going to read later on in these judgments that they couldn't even kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. They couldn't go a Sabbath day's journey. They say, oh, we keep the Sabbath. Well, where'd you go? Oh, we ran down to Rod. No, you don't go to Rod. You had a certain distance you could travel on the Sabbath day. Uh, did you cook breakfast? No, you couldn't cook breakfast. On the Sabbath day, you were not to kindle a fire in all your dwellings. And many of these things were under the penalty of death. And yet people say, oh yeah, we observe. We observe the Old Testament Sabbath. Well, I wonder if they do. They may claim they do. But uh, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of uh, unobservance in their claim to observe. In verse 11, it says, uh, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Verse uh, 12 is the fifth commandment. Now it says, Honor thy father and thy mother. By the way, the first four that we've dealt with have to do with what? 
man's relationship, his reverence and honor to God. That's the first four. We just talked about them. What is it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make in thee any graven image. And he says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's all Godward, right? And that, remember the Sabbath because God in six days made the heavens and the earth, and etc. Remember, God is a God of creation. Okay? Now, the next six, the last of the six of the Ten Commandments, have to do with man's relationship to man. By the way, that th- thing I told you a little bit ago about Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus didn't start at the top and, and say, how, how is your relationship with God? He started at the lower level. You know, if you, if you fail in the lower level, you certainly are going to fail in the higher level, right? And so he started at the bottom with this man's relationship to man. And instead of arguing with him that he hadn't kept all these things, well, you know, attached in that last commandment, or those commandments, the last six, was the thought of how you would treat your neighbor. And it says uh, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus could have come down on that. And he said, well, look, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't be so selfish and you'd share a little bit of your riches and your wealth with other folks. And this man wouldn't, wasn't willing to do that. So he could have... He could have argued back. Jesus didn't argue back with him. He just says, I'll just go a step deeper in the, in the, into the law. And if the first doesn't catch him, I'll get him with the next one. Right? You see, we are, we're guilty of breaking God's law. All of us. And the Bible teaches that we are all guilty and come, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's go on to verse 12. It says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Paul quotes this in the book of Ephesians, and he says, Honor thy father and thy mother. This is the first commandment with promise. It has a promise in it. The book of Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians, and we'll get this for you. Ephesians. I believe it's in chapter 6. See if I can find it. Uh... Verse 2. Let's read verse 1 and 2. It says, Children, Ephesians 6, verse 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That doesn't mean if your parent were to tell you to curse God or to go out and commit a, a, a heinous crime that you should obey your parents. It says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then it says, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with what? With promise. And what is it? What was the promise? Honor thy father and thy mother, back as we read it, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You want to promise that God will bless you and give you a long life? He says, show honor to your father and your mother. And God's going to remember that. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not exceptions to all commandments. Suppose a person, you have a young child, young boy, young girl, are a young couple and they're very considerate of father and mother and very respectful and good Christian people because of some way or another in the providence of God they're taken out before uh, a long life upon this earth. It doesn't mean that there's not exceptions to all these things because we know they're to be. And then that's what troubles us sometimes. But there are those things that happen. But in the providence of God He knows what's best for every one of us. 
And when we surrender to that will and say, God, I know that your will has been done, then everything is at peace in our hearts. Even though we know there may be some mysterious uh, differences between what we understand that he promised and what is. But uh, this is... This is what men face all through the Bible. There are mysteries we do not understand. And sometimes there are exceptions to the rule. Let me give you an instance. As we're trying to uh, establish this, let me give you something. Uh, You remember uh, David said, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Right? We say, well, God's going to take care of his own. Yet we find in the New Testament that there was a certain rich man and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus laid at his gate full of sores, designed to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. What about Lazarus? It says Lazarus, when he died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. There's the exception, isn't it? Isn't that the exception? certainly is. Within the pages of God's Word. So you have to realize that everything is just not black and white all the way through. And you say, if I'll do this, this will never happen. God has God is overall and God is sovereign in His grace and sovereign in His actions. And He can set up kings and remove kings. And also He works in the providence in, providence in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. But we are given guidelines in God's Word. And it's up to us to obey and follow those guidelines. And if God in His wisdom sees to do something different than what we expect, let's not be surprised because we are in the hands of God. And we need to recognize that fact as well. Alright, let's go on down. It says in verse 13, Thou shalt not kill, murder, malice, hatred, personal revenge. You know, in the New Testament, uh, John says in the, first, the book of First John, says, you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. He that hateth his brother without a cause is a murderer. That's what John says. To hate is the inward sin of murder. You may not have killed anyone with a knife or a gun. See? But he says, he that hateth his brother without a cause is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So you see, it can take on a different form. It can take on that part of the inside of a man so that he's guilty even though he hasn't committed the crime. Jesus said the same thing about adultery, didn't he? He said, Whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Right? And so maybe he didn't outwardly or physically commit that sin. But if he looked with that lust and and lusted after a woman in that way. And Jesus says then that the sin reaches deeper than the outward act and open uh, committal of that crime. He says it reaches even into our hearts. And that's why, if it reaches that far, Jesus exalted the the law to the place that we see that certainly we've sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, if you, if you have these things in your heart, Jesus said, from within, from within the heart of man cometh forth uh, thefts, murders, adulteries, fornications. All of these things stem from within a man. But he says, that which enters in a man, the food he eats, does not defile a man. But that which comes out of his heart. 
So we need the change. We need a divine nature and a, a divine life so that we will not have a corrupt and inward man. The inside of us will be corrupt. And then we can issue forth sweet waters and good things from life. But there has to be an inward change. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. We've got the old corrupt nature, don't we? But He says you need the new one, the divine nature. And when a man is born from above, he has a new nature imparted. And because this new nature is imparted, it's capable of living and responding toward God and living for God. And it doesn't mean that you got rid of the old one because you still have that old sinful nature which you must fight with with this power of the new nature that you have. A lot of people say, well, I'm a Christian, now why do I have trouble? Well, you have trouble because you are a Christian. We preached on the war with Amalek in our last lesson, remember? And they didn't have that war until they were delivered and redeemed, and then they fought against Amalek's the picture of the flesh. And when you and I realize that we're saved and we're really a child of God, then we're going to have a battle on the inside. With the flesh, we're going to have a battle on the outside with the world and a real spiritual battle with the devil. The three great arch enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are going to flare up and try to overcome you if you're a child of God. And the thing about it is, you need to, being forewarned is to be forearmed. If you say, well, preacher, I know I'm going to have these problems, how do I face it? Well, we're told in the Bible how to face each one of these enemies. How did Jesus overcome Satan's temptations? The devil came and he said, Well, turn these, if you're the Son of God, if thou be a Son of God, if thou art the Son of God, in Jesus' case, to you and I, if you are a child of God, he would probably say, Okay, Jesus said, uh, He said to Jesus, Turn these stones into bread. Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. You're going to have to take the same weapons of warfare that Jesus took, and you can overcome Satan. But if you don't, do not take up those weapons, you'll not be able to overcome the devil. You must use the proper instruments of warfare against the devil. Uh, Peter says, Your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now listen carefully. 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe it's about verse 6, 7, and 8 along in there. He says, Whom resist... How are you going to resist Him? Steadfast in the faith. Have your faith in God's Word. Have the Word of God as a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know how to handle the devil if you've got the right instruments of warfare. And it says, whom resist? Suppose the devil comes along to you and says, now look, uh, you're not a child of God. You're just thinking that. You're, uh, you're presuming that because you go to church and because you try to live right and because... You think that you've had a new new experience and you've been born again, and you're really not. You know what you do? tell the devil? Say, I know whom I have believed, and he's persuaded to keep that which I've committed unto him. Say, I, I know that the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, who is he, he that condemneth? How can you condemn me? Christ, the one that died, right? And who lives again? And you can come back with arguments from the Scripture and put him in his place and go on your way rejoicing. But if you try to do it in your own strength, you'll lose the battle. That's why you need to be armed with the Word of God. And that's why, if you want to put the bottom line, that's why you need to, need to be in the house of God so you'll be taught the Word of God. That's why you need to read your Bible. And so you will be armed. 
John says, and I may be preaching something besides this, but listen. John says in the book of First Epistle of John, he says, I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Then he says, I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one and the Word of God dwelleth, uh, abideth in you or dwells in you. Okay, how did they overcome the wicked one? Because the Word of God dwelt in them, right? So if you're going to overcome the wicked one, you better let the Word of God begin to dwell in you richly, and then you can overcome the wicked one, whether it's the world or the flesh or the devil. And so what I'm saying is this. You need the house of God. You need the church of God. You need the Word of God. You need to... Uh, not only study it individually at home, but especially to be taught it, because a lot of people read the Bible that do not really understand the the foundation meaning of it. And that's why God has ordained the teaching and preaching ministry. And that's why you need to be in the house of God. Uh, I don't say tonight that you've learned a whole lot, but possibly you've been given a clue on one idea or another of how you're to face life. And see, if you wasn't here, you wouldn't give it. If you just got one clue of the whole thing tonight, of how to, to meet with the problems of life and understand the law and its relationship, if you just got one thing, then it would be worth you being here because then you get another thing the next time and another thing the next time. The first thing you know, you've got a good foundation under you and you can go out and you can live the life that God would have you to live. But if you just neglect to exercise yourself into godly things... Well, then the first thing you know, you'll be a weakling. You know, these guys are trained for the Olympics. They didn't just go out there uh, one week and say, week before the Olympics and say, oh, I'm going out here and I'm going to run about a mile and a half or two miles and I'm ready to run the race, the marathon. No, they trained all year long and got stronger and stronger and more able to, to breathe uh, with all the exercise and to take in those breaths and to exercise those muscles and to keep going and to, to, to just push themselves another step further. And then they were ready. And the Bible says, now listen, exercise.